Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. Don't forget, if you like these podcasts, you could show us by hitting the donate button if you haven't already. So this is the second part of our interview, talking about the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, that's UNCTAD, and its 2020 report titled, From Global Pandemic to Prosperity for All, Avoiding Another Lost Decade. And now joining us again from Geneva to discuss the report is its principal author, Richard Kozel Wright. He's the director of the Division on Globalization and Development Strategies at UNCTAD. He's also the author of Transforming Economies, Making Industrial Policy Work for Growth, Jobs, and Development. And if you haven't listened or watched, I guess it's more listened, but you can watch too in some way. Uh, part one, I suggest you go back to part one because this will make part two make more sense. Thanks for joining us, Richard. Good to be back, Paul. So uh, I'm going to just quote uh, a section and then we'll talk about it and then I'll quote another section and we'll talk about it. So in a part whose headline is Look Back in Anger is the title of the section, you write, governments, and we're talking since the 07 08 crisis. Government spending did increase, but the programs targeted large firms and financial institutions, not workers, homeowners, and local communities. So the, this is, you're talking to a large extent about the Fed, although I suppose this applies to some of the European governments as well. Uh, and the argument is that people who defend how that money was spent, and I'm not sure we actually know what proportion went essentially to prop up the stock market and, and the uh, value of assets and how much went actually got into the uh, pockets of ordinary people. But certainly a large part and maybe the lion's share went towards uh, government spending towards large firms and financial institutions. At any rate, the argument for doing that is that if you didn't do that, then large firms and financial institutions might have collapsed or had a massive amount of bankruptcy, which would have caused so much economic dislocation that that would have hurt workers, homeowners, and local communities even more. So what do you, what do you make of that? Part of what we're trying to do in, in this report is just hold up the experience after the global financial crisis as a warning. I mean, we're all talking about, you know, recovering better or building back better, I think, is the slogan in, in, in political circles. Biden's slogan. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, people forget that Gordon Brown and Obama and the people who congregated in London in, in April 2009 had much the same rhetoric, right? And And actually, the the plan that they hatched in in London was a you know it was a pretty progressive uh, plan. They you know, they promised to put a priority on jobs. They would they would uh, re-regulate finance so that the excesses didn't happen again. Uh, they would keep trade flowing. There'd be a focus on innovation. I mean I mean a lot of things that we're hearing now were, were very much up front and center. This is when? In 2009. Yeah, in the G20, uh, you know, the, the G20. And Gordon Brown talked about a new Bretton Woods, and Nicholas Sarkozy talked about a new international economic order. So there was a, you know, there was a, in comparison with today, one could argue that these seem like, you know, heavyweight 
politicos compared with what we what we have today. So there was a real expectation back in 2009 that that there would be fundamental changes to the uh, rules of the game, and uh, yeah, and it it was effect- proved to be very ephemeral. Uh, once that once financial markets had regained their poise and and central bank balance. Uh, uh, bank balance sheets were were put into some kind of order. We know that the default adjustment strategy was austerity. You know, and all the talk that having thrown all this money at the problem, we now have to bite the bullet and and behave like a responsible household uh, and 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 put our own finances in order. I mean, that was you know this notion of expansionary austerity that still has a grip on the minds of some academics. Uh, academic economists and policymakers we, you know, quickly found a found became the kind of policy wisdom of the day, and 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 we so we wanted to tell that story again, ju- just as a reminder that we we have heard all this stuff before, and we saw the consequences, and the consequences were that you know this combination essentially of uh, of uh, fiscal tightening. Um, very easy monetary policy and free trade agreements of one kind or another and uh, was the kind of package that eventually came to dominate policy circles from 2010. And, and we're hearing the same, you know, and, and, and that didn't work. What, what, what we got was, a, you know, increasing inequality, wage stagnation at the, uh, for the majority, uh, a financial asset bubble driven by, the, that by these huge um, in, in, in surges of liquidity um, at the top, uh, and 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 it led to a combination of high inequality, growing inequality, uh, financial fragility, and huge amounts of debt, and growing anxiety everywhere. And that was the environment that bred these kind of political uh, shifts in. 2016, 2017 that we all know about and left the global economy at the end of the decade in a fairly perilous state. Uh, you know, the, the world economy was slowing down in 2019. Investment was slowing down. The effect of the Trump tax cuts was wearing off. And, you know, back in our report last year, we, we said the world economy could very well easily be tipped into a recession if uh, if things if, if, if there's some unexpected shock that 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 hits you know the major economies we didn't expect COVID nineteen obviously but there was lots of talk then about the China U S trade uh, spats uh, there was worries about currency wars you know there were lots of there was the the the, the problem of of ex, uh, huge amounts of corporate debt that that were, that were looking increasingly fragile so there were lots of potential flash Flashpoints already at the end of 2019, in against this backdrop of a of a global economy that had not recovered better, despite all the promises in 2009, uh, and and you know we see we worry that that may be the route that we we come out of COVID-19 uh, via too. Uh, read another quote from the report. While the withdrawal of fiscal stimulus adversely impacted growth, the continuation of quantitative easing and low interest rates propelled asset prices ever higher. At the same time, a combination of corporate rent-seeking and cheap credit in the context of weak demand reinforced the culture of quick financial returns with private equity outsourcing share buybacks and mergers and acquisitions the instruments of choice. 
to take a startling example, between 2010 and 2019, the S&P 500 companies channeled almost a trillion dollars a year into share buybacks and dividend payments. So, so let's br- break this down. So first of all, for people that don't understand how quantitative easing actually worked and so on, and why did and low interest rates propelled asset prices. So let's just say asset prices are like the stock market and, and what else. So br- break that sentence down. Houses, the housing market is another one. We got the rise of private equity emerging over the course of this, of this decade. So, I mean, back, back. You know, the, the, on the basis of liquidity that was not spilling into supporting uh, productive investment in the economy, um, wasn't, wasn't, you know, driving some sort of uh, strong wage growth. It, it had to go somewhere, and it, most of it leaked into uh, finan- financial assets of, of, one kind, of one kind or another. And by liquidity, you mean money that was... Almost free to the banks from the Fed. The interest rate was so low; it was like free money. Yeah, but like free, uh, you know, and in some cases, turned negative. Right? What does that mean? Turn negative? Well, I mean, it means it meant you paid less at the end if you issuing a bond. You paid less. Uh, you, you you know you 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 bu- you bought it back in ten years' time for 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 less than the the issuing the issuing price. Right? And this was all supposedly to put more money into the system, which would supposedly give more growth and supposedly more employment, except that isn't what happened. The first real experiment of this had occurred a decade earlier with the response of the Fed to the dot-com crisis, right? I mean, that in response to that, the the Fed opened up the the, uh, money tap. And what you got is uh, you got initially, of course, an increase in, in house prices. You also got, which had a important impact on developing countries, you got some of that money moving into commodities. So commodities became an asset class. Like, like, like food. <laughs> yeah, I mean that. I mean that. That was a feature of the of the of the run up to the to to the financial crisis, and it actually continued beyond the financial crisis. So asset prices, uh, commodity prices, actually did rise uh, after the financial crisis, which is why some developing countries worked themselves through the shock of the crisis better than many people expected and better than many advanced economies. And that collapsed in 2014, 2015 commodity prices because it was a speculative. It wasn't driven by fundamentals, if you like, supply and demand. It was driven very heavily by by financial transactions. And that, and, and as, as, as investors got nervous, we had a collapse in commodity prices in 2014, 2015, with with some pretty damaging consequences for many for many developing countries that they're still that they're still living through. Um, so I mean, so so yeah, we saw that on the on the monetary side of the of the economy as as austerity was you know squeezing the the real side of the of the economy uh, over the course of the last decade, which is, you know, and they and they played off each other, which is why, you you know, even though we had a very um, long recovery after 2009, you know, there was a, lo- a very long recovery. I think 
one of the longest recoveries of positive quarterly growth on record, it was very weak and ephemeral. You'd get a kind of surge and there was a talk that somehow we'd finally broken out of this new normal into a, a more rapid and sustained growth. And then, and then sentiment would shift and, and, and growth would, would, would dip again. And so it was a very, it was a long but, but weak recovery, essentially. Well, just to be clear, when, when we talk about austerity, you, you say, you write, this is little more than a euphemism for a weakening social safety net and keeping wages in use in check. You could also say low. Um, but let, let's break down this, this issue of stock buy, buybacks because uh, it's, a, it's a very important feature that rarely gets talked about except on Bloomberg business radio and in the financial press. But in terms of ordinary people, they, I, I, my guess is most people have never even heard of stock buybacks. And it used to be illegal. I, I think I'm not sure if it was under Reagan or Clinton that they allowed companies to buy back their own shares, but it was illegal because it was creating a false stock price. Companies could simply artificially raise the value of their stock by buying their own stock, creating a demand where it might not have been otherwise. And then it becomes legal and, and it's a free-for-all of borrowing cheap, cheap money from the Fed and elsewhere and then buying their own stock, creating massive amounts of corporate debt. I mean, Apple was borrowing money to buy its own stock. At the same time, Apple had a mountain of cash on hand. And, and creating this uh, artificial stock market and large amounts of corporate debt. And if I understand correctly, uh, this new stimulus money, the, 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 the care package or whatever the, that came out uh, after COVID, and the, a large amount of the money that went to corporations, they used to pay down debt, debt that came from borrowing money to buy their own stock, which was essentially a scam in the first place. I don't think the worry is so much with some of these massive corporations that, as you say, are sitting on themselves on huge amounts of of, of cash. But, you know, a lot of kind of more medium-sized countries engaged, uh, companies engaged in this. And, and, and you got already before the COVID-19 crisis here, you got all this talk about zombie companies that were essentially kept going on the basis. It's a kind of Ponzi financing scheme of some kind, right? Uh, that, that, that were kept going because they still had access to uh, uh, very cheap sources of, of um, lending. Uh, of borrowing and and so you know that that was a that's and and, and that somehow listened and it's linked to the whole rise of shareholder value and and that that you know this shift in corporate uh, uh, corporate strategy which we've written about before in previous TDRs linked to this financialization of the of the economy where quarterly returns become a far more important metric for judging the success of companies than long-term strategic value and, 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 uh, and, and the kind of, you know, quality of the product and, and, and the labor force that is employed. So, uh, you know, that, that feat, this kind of, this kind of financialization of the corporate sector clearly predates COVID-19. It predates, I think, the 2009 crisis, but underneath it has been this huge accumulation of, of corporate debt. I mean, the, you know, a lot of the problem with the, with the discussion of debt is that everyone instinctively focuses on the debt of the public sector, but the rise of debt 
in this era of hyper-globalization has been dominated by the rise of private debt, both household, corporate, and financial uh, institutions, you know, borrowing huge amounts of, 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 of money from each other. You write there are growing concerns that the massive relief packages in response to the crisis will keep many large and destined-to-fail firms going, even as viable smaller businesses are starved of funds, and again, transferring dangerous risks from the private to the public balance sheet. I mean, I think you, or you probably know better than I do, but I think this has been a criticism of the CARES Act, right? There were there were certain, uh, there were certain uh, credit lines that had been uh, designed to support small businesses, and it turned out that uh, you know a lot of that money was being channeled into you know much larger, much larger corporations. I think some of them actually had to give it back at some point when when that became public. But but you know that that abuse. I mean, we don't. I don't. I, it's not something that we've examined in great detail. The distribution of the of the money under the CARES Act, but the kind of what you read is that it's been highly skewed in favor of of you know the big players and and the, the worry this is a kind of second is you know this is a worry coming out of covid-19 that these that these problems that were left unaddressed after the 2009 crisis the problems of uh, excessive amounts of debt the problems of of in- rising inequality the problems of financial fragility if and and this growing power of large uh, corporations with digital firms being somehow kind of typical of of this that the these kinds of uh, uh, underlying these pre-existing conditions if you like uh, are going to actually be exaggerated by by many of the features of the COVID-19 shock. You write, economists refer to the transfer of private risk to the general public as a moral hazard, the privatization of profits and the social socialization of losses and inevitable corollary. Just before that, you wrote, the world did not prepare for the COVID-19 pandemic as well as it could have, and the ethos that informed the response to the global financial crisis has something to do with that failure. Epidemiological and economic warning signs have flashed for years. What's the connection between not preparing for the pandemic and this ethos uh, of the financial crisis? This kind of rent-seeking capitalism, uh, heavily financialized, that has emerged over the last 25, 30 years really, is a very is a highly predatory form of capitalism. Uh, and and that's quite clear in, in the way in which I mean the kind of the, the 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 kind of best indication of this as we've examined it is the way in which the share of profits in overall income has has morphed over this period and the share of wages in in overall income has steadily uh, uh, and systematically uh, declined uh, over this over this uh, same period, but you know, so, and, and underneath this is that these very predatory type of rent seeking behaviours that particularly large monopolistic or monopsonistic firms have been able to engage in, often with with changes in the legal structure that allows that to happen. And I, I guess we we don't think it's particularly surprising that if you're going to te- treat your own uh, social communities in that way, that it's not surprising that you would treat the natural environment also as, as essentially something to be mined 
uh, at will to enhance your bottom line. And I guess that's really what has been happening in large in large parts of the global economy. And to some extent, at least as as people who know more about that than uh, this than than we do suggest, you know, this has been a breeding ground for these uh, zootopic diseases, of which COVID nineteen is has, has proved to be one of the most most troublesome, although not the most the, not the most deadly, but certainly in terms of, of of its ability to spread, has has proved particularly damaging. And so, you know, there is a connection, it seems to us, between this kind of rent seeking behaviour that has become a feature of 21st century capitalism and the destruction of the environment and the uh, that we obviously we know from the climate uh, breakdown but has also bred uh, you know these these diseases that have become increasingly common i don't think we kind of really get yet just how destructive to the global economy the pandemic has been i guess because of the amount of uh, money being pumped in by central banks around the world. Uh, but you, you write that in wake of these shocks, the global economy will contract by, by an estimated 4.3% this year, leaving global output by year's end over $6 trillion short in current U.S. dollars of what The Economist had expected it to be before COVID-19 pathogen began to spread. In short, the world is grappling with the equivalent of a complete wipeout of the Brazilian, Indian, and Mexican economies. Like, that's a big deal, but the stock market more or less keeps going up. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, because, you know, large, you know, if, if the estimated size of these packages for the G20 countries is in the order of $13 trillion, right? I mean, and that money's going somewhere, and some of it is quite clearly spilling into into stock markets and which is why we see this you know incredible disconnect between the the financial markets and a growing sense of anxiety amongst large parts of the population who who are either already lost their jobs or see their jobs becoming increasingly vulnerable as as these uh, packages um, uh, begin to, to, to wane, uh, you know, and uh, throwing, being thrown out of their houses as, as some of these rental schemes come to an end. I mean, you know, there's a, there's, there is this huge disconnect between the world of finance and the, and the, the lives that most people experience. But again, it's not, this is not a product of COVID-19. I think it's very important to, to recognize that this is something that has been uh, working through the system now for decades. And, uh, and, and, and the COVID-19 has exposed many of these problems and uh, cast them in a very particular light, given the extremity of the lockdown. But, uh, but they, this is, you know, this, and again, this takes us back to this endless narrative that frustrates us a little bit about, you know, there's, I mean, we face this in the, in, you know, the, the, the common explanation of this is to, to say, well, you know, unfortunately, some people have been left behind. It's a, it's a common refrain that we hear in in the international uh, community that that somehow you know we just uh, forgot about certain people who were uneducated or didn't have the skills, uh, etc. But you know, and that ignores the fact that the rules of the game of this hyperglobalized world are actually geared to uh, towards um, uh, uh, inequality as a modus operandi of the system. 
I mean, it's how the system works. It's not an accident or, or forgetfulness that has led to these uh, obscene levels of inequality. It's it's how the rules of the game are meant to play out, you know. And that's and that's so trying to get an under trying trying to emphasise that if we don't recognise that there's something inherently wrong with the with the the way in which the, the the 21st century economic game is being played if we don't recognize that there's no way that we can recover better or build back better because you're going to have to kind of tackle the interests and the norms and the values that have emerged out of those and alongside those rules if you're going to create a more sustainable and inclusive uh, outcome over the next over the next decade the the craziness of all this that the stock market continues to rise because mostly i guess cuz the fed uh and this has repercussions around the world but the fed keeps buying bonds and even even buying stocks apparently to make sure that the market doesn't crash but that it's all built on this kind of smoke and mirrors to a large extent of, of this public money uh, propping up these assets and everybody, uh, the mentality is, you know, we'll cash in on it today and not worry about tomorrow. And, and they once asked Marx to explain the psychology of a capitalist. And his answer was, après moi le deluge, uh, quoting uh, the French king. I forget which one it was. Uh, but but after me come the floods. And, and it seems to me that's where we're at right now in, in terms of the way the world global economy is working. Although after me come the floods, the floods are also going to be literal the way they're ignoring and denying uh, the climate crisis. And you put the denial of the climate crisis and the denial of the economic uh, crisis, really, in the, in the sense of how irrational the global economy is working. And uh, and their, their mentality is, well, we'll make money today and tomorrow can worry about itself. It's not debt per se that's the problem, right? I mean, credit is this kind of amazing instrument that that has been around for for millennia, which is a necessary part of a dynamic economy, right? It's the fact that debt is this has become this highly privatized business that keeps this uh, uh, semi-irrational system uh, of of endless. Uh, financial tra- tra- transactions going. I mean, you know, we would argue that uh, what we need to see moving forward is a is a huge increase in public investment to deal with these preconditions that have been left uh, um, uh, undealt with uh, after the global financial crisis. So, the problem to, to to get at the problems of the climate breakdown of 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 the uh, of inequality of decaying public services i mean the only the only response to that is to be able to uh, uh, have a huge um, public investment drive uh, in, into public transport and the care economy and the and the green economy etc and that will require uh, an, an effective uh, and supportive credit system. I mean, the problem is that the credit system, as it currently operates under the rules of the game, p- perpetuate this highly financialized, highly unequal world, which which doesn't generate the kind of stability and inclusiveness that, that 
at least the the rhetoric of building back better or recovering better suggests. And we'll see. I mean, right now it's looking like a Biden presidency, uh, even more today than last week uh, or before the debate. Uh, Biden's way ahead in the polls. And I don't see how this uh, Trump getting COVID helps his case at all. Um, but but I, I guess the, the what you're saying is the issue is not whether there's public expenditure, although I think there could be some argument that instead of just debt, there could be more taxation of the wealthy to fund this uh, public expenditure. But maybe it's not worth the political fight right now, given the situation is so urgent. But the problem is, what do you do with the public expenditure? Is it actually going into uh, infrastructure and other kinds of projects that also lead to higher wages and more real demand in the economy? or propping up asset prices. And uh, right now, given the way finance controls the politics, uh, I guess we'll see whether whether that strategy actually changes or they just dress it up in, in another gown and it winds up, again, just propping up asset prices. I mean, I would still argue that there is actually a necessary and strong case for progressive taxation, right? I don't think, I don't think it's an either. I think that you would, at least in the, in the, um, modeling exercise that we present to you, there is an important role for progressive taxation as underpinning this kind of, uh, this kind of agenda. But the argument is that you can create this kind of virtuous circle uh, in which public spending leads through strong public investment to higher productivity growth. If you, you have to tie wages to productivity growth to ensure that, that, that the, uh, wages uh, are rising in line. Uh, that leads to an expanding uh, tax base, uh, you know, that allows governments, if they have to borrow, to be able to service borrowing. And I mean, you, this idea of a virtuous circle that is is uh, that underpins this alternative to austerity and reglobalization. I think I think is what we're trying to get at in terms of the uh, in terms of the policy proposals in in, in the report. Okay, well, we're going to uh, end this session and we'll pick it up again uh, and where we're going to talk about the next part of the report, which is almost in brackets, everyone left behind and talking about wages and, and, and some of those kinds of issues. Uh, thanks very much for joining us, Richard. Thanks for inviting me, Paul. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm-hmm.